This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome two-time New York Times bestseller, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson to the show. She has co-authored The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, as well as The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up with Dr. Dan Siegel. And today she is here to talk about her first solo project called The Bottom Line for Baby. In The Bottom Line for Baby, she talks about many of the most pressing and burning parenting conversations such as diapering and feeding and sleep and all kinds of topics, surveys the research and gives you the bottom line of what the research has to say. It's a really helpful and practical book. And we also get into the bottom line of the bottom line, which is really about the secure attachment that we form over time. Dr. Tina teaches us about the four S's of a secure attachment that are at the crux of so much that I teach and the work that I do. So go grab a cup of coffee or put your walking shoes on with your podcast and your stroller. Get ready because this is going to be a great episode. This episode is brought to you by Huckleberry. Huckleberry is a parenting app with the world's first real-time predictive algorithm for nap times that lets you know when your child will be tired, but not overtired. It's sanity-saving, tantrum-reducing, and adapts as your child grows. Head to the App Store and download Huckleberry today. Available on iOS and Android. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Tina, thank you so much for making the time to join us on the podcast today. Um, when we first started setting up this interview, I am going to admit I had a little bit of a fangirl moment because I'm <laughs> absolutely obsessed. I think that the first book of yours I read um, was the one that you co-wrote with Dr. Dan Siegel. I think it was The Whole Brain Child or No Drama Discipline, one of the two, and they led into the other. And I was down the rabbit hole of oh, wow. uh, of all the wonderful resources and research you guys have done. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, The Whole Brain Child was such a fun surprise. You know, I never knew I would ever write books, but I was studying uh, interpersonal neurobiology and I was working on a PhD and I had babies and I was learning all this science and I was like, oh my gosh, this could change how we think about parenting and how we understand behavior. We have got to share this. So anyway, The Whole Brain Child came out actually nine years ago this month, which is wow. crazy. Um, and it's it's just 
been so well received. It's been wonderful. And then No Drama Discipline followed, then The Yes Brain. And then our most recent one that we co-authored together is called The Power of Showing Up that came out in January of this year. Exciting. Yeah. And I feel like we're going to weave parts of all of these books into our interview today, uh, partially because I also feel like just as a practitioner, they've been so foundational in my own learning, which I've so appreciated, particularly No Drama Discipline, I feel like has has completely shifted my entire mindset around discipline. Good, good. Um, that was the goal. <laughs> right. And like you think of how we're raised uh, and then how science sort of tells us we can engage. And one of the most effective strategies um, out of that is I get right down with my middle one, who's a real fighter. He's a real feisty one. And as soon as I kind of get down on his level with him, yeah. he just collapses into my yeah. arm. It works and it feels good and it builds relationship and it builds brains. I mean, really a lot of what we do in the name of discipline is actually counterproductive, making it less likely kids will learn. Um, So anyway, I'm really proud of all of the books. But for that book, I'm really proud that it's had such an impact on how we think about kids' behaviors and how we respond to them. And it's effective and it's also optimal in terms of development and helping them become self-disciplined people. So I love sharing the concepts with um, from all of the books, but particularly that one with educators as well, because they deal with a lot of discipline issues. And so much of it is that more command and demand punitive approach that doesn't do anything to build skills or give kids a chance to learn how to do it differently the next time. So you're going to just continue to see the behavior. So it's really fun. Yeah. Shifted entire perspectives, like shifting the entire conversation around discipline for how it's been done for generations upon generations, right? And I I very rarely um, feel the need to like be adamant that I subject my husband to a book that I'm also <laughs> reading. But that was one of the ones that I'm like, we are like, this is, we need to be on the same page. This book is is amazing. So, and at the end of that book, we, I actually knew that there would be a lot of spouses that would be sort of forced to read the book after one, you know, after one parent read it, be like, you have to read this. Um, so there's a three page section at the end of that book called a note to the child's other caregivers. And it's basically the (laughs) whole philosophy in three, in like three pages. So if you have a co-parent, you want to get up to speed, you know, obviously, um, I've done a lot of podcasts on that book and I have a couple of short videos that talk about the, the philosophy, but there is a three-page section in that book that gives you the whole, the main thing. Yes, if we can forcefully make spouses <laughs> take in the whole book. As you know, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so thank you. I say all that to just really sing your praises and appreciate the work that thank you've been you. doing. So you've got a new independently I authored do. book coming out, Bottom Line for Baby. And it's really interesting because my whole audience is moms. And this is a maternal mental health podcast. We, we address a lot of maternal mental health issues and like mom issues from different varying perspectives. And so one of the the pieces that stood out of the book that I got to take in was postpartum depression was one of the chapters. There's yeah. lots of lots of different things that you cover and we'll we can dive into some of those other areas, but it really got my mind going about a lot of the questions that come in for moms around the impact of mental health challenges for mom in the postpartum period and what secure attachment really looks like. So you did touch on postpartum depression a little bit. Maybe we can start there on the impacts of postpartum depression. Yeah. So, well, the first thing I want to say is the book is called The Bottom Line for Baby. And I wrote this book because it was the first book I longed for as a parent that didn't exist. And the first time I had a baby was 20 years ago. 20 and a half years ago. My oldest is 20. And, um, and that book still didn't exist. So I decided I wanted to write it. It's a very different book from the books I've co-authored with Dan. 
Um, and Dan and I will probably write a few more books together. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is alphabetical. And I wrote it because as a parent, and particularly if we're having postpartum mood challenges, yes, we have to make a lot of decisions about our baby and our baby's care and how we're going to handle some of those parenting decisions can be really overwhelming, particularly, and this is the main reason I wrote the book, because we get such competing advice and information. So mm-hmm. I would have, I knew like, here I am in the hospital. I have to make these decisions. I didn't even know I would have to make in the in the hospital. My baby's crying a lot. Um, and the nurse says, do you want to give him a pacifier? And I was like, I don't know. What about nipple confusion? Like, is that okay? And I had like all these questions. And so if you haven't had a baby, this is a book that should go and you're going to have a hospital birth, take this book with you because you're going to have to make decisions about whether or not you're going to give your baby a bath at the hospital. There's going to be all these decisions. So what I did in the book is, so what happened for me is then I would look like dive into pacifier use and I would read all this stuff and everything I read contradicted everything else. Totally. And every person I talked to had a different opinion. And so then I was like, well, what's the right thing? So what I did in this book was pick about 65 topics of the decisions that we have to make about our parenting a baby and really um, dig into the science and see what the science says. So every entry alphabetically organized, you can turn like to P, pacifier. And every entry is laid out this way. It's got the two main competing opinions or perspectives on that issue. Then it's got a section called um, what the science says. And I give a summary of quality, recent, peer-reviewed when it's available, science. Sometimes I say there's no good science on this, or you may think there's good science on this, but there's really not that much, including like sleep training. There are less than 15 solid studies on the impact of sleep training. Crazy, hey? I know. But it's such a polarizing topic. It's a huge topic. And then things that people think, like some people believe you have to sleep train or do some sort of cried out method or your child will never learn to sleep. That's just not true. That's not what the science bears out. So it kind of clears up some of those kinds of things as well. So after what the science says summary, then I give a bottom line. And the bottom line says, look, the science is really clear, for instance, on over sanitizing your baby's environment, like germs. The science says, don't over sanitize. It's actually better. Like if you lick your kid's pacifier clean or they're around pets or they know what dirt tastes like, um, even babies who suck their thumbs, all um, when you get more germ exposure, obviously within reason, um, it actually reduces allergens and eczema and all these kinds of things. So it just gives really solid, here's the bottom line. And then when the science doesn't indicate a clear path, then I give some things for people to think about. And then in about a third of the end, Entries, there's a section called a note from Tina because I worked really hard to objectively report on the science. And sometimes I have a different um, opinion or belief than what the science would lead us to. So that's where I would put that section because I really wanted it to be clean and reporting the science. I think a lot of parenting books even science-based ones are written to justify the author's parenting decisions over the years. Right. So I didn't want to do that. So postpartum um, depression and mood disorders was a really important part to put in here. It's not obviously a controversial topic te- typically, but I just felt like it was such an important thing um, to have in here. So in that section, I really talk about how First of all, it's way more common than people think. Um, It's a very natural part of your body and your mind adjusting to um, this new huge change. And it's so important to ask for help when you need it. You know, we know that. So I'm just I'm turning to this section right now. If you you know, if you recognize that in yourself, if you're feeling like you're not yourself, that's obviously how all of us feel pretty much afterwards. But many states even now require some screenings. I mean, I, I have 
have so many friends who experience postpartum depression who didn't even know they were going through that until years later. Mm-hmm. And they said, gosh, if my pediatrician or my OBGYN had just asked me, how are you doing and how are you feeling we could have caught it. So obviously, if you're having, um, you know, these kinds of symptoms, this is something that can be treated really effectively, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we get treatment and that we ask for help. Because one of the most important things that we can give our baby, and we can you know, this can lead into the the attachment piece is that we are engaged with them and that we are having moments of delighting in them. And we don't have to delight in them every second. You know, when there's a poop blowout and you're exhausted, (laughs) like you don't have to delight, please don't make yourself delight. Um, (laughs) But we need to have moments where we are engaged. You know, when we are depressed, we often have a flatter affect. So our face isn't as animated. We're just really kind of more shut down. Um, And so our baby may not even be getting the more amplified facial expressions. Or one of the entries in here is about parentese, which is that it used to be called motherese, but it's that sing-songy language. Like when we say- I oh, read that do you see the yes. doggy, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the research was super robust and clear that that is way better for babies than just talking to them like adults. So, Isn't that so interesting? Yeah. 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 So we want to especially give dads permission to, to do that. I think a lot of them do when no one's listening, but, um, <laughs> but actually babies prefer it and it does great things to lay down networks for them to understand language and rhythm and sound and all of those things. So, but when we are depressed, um, even using, you know, vocal inflection and facial animation get dampened. And so, you know, it's really important that we get the support and help we need and certainly a lot of women experience it. And so it's just really good to be informed. If you feel like you're not yourself and it's kind of sticking around beyond just I'm feeling tired and this is a big adjustment, but you're really feeling blue or something that's not talked about a lot is um, postpartum anxiety. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the, you know, depression and anxiety are two sides of the same coin. You can experience both which some people don't know, or um, I've certainly clinically seen moms who were like, I'm definitely not depressed, but they are so anxious that they're really having a hard time even enjoying their baby because they're they're feeling so anxious about everything. So that's Mm -hmm. another way to seek help. And um, what's great is that um, obviously there are all kinds of non-medication approaches to get support, but the medication approaches are very effective and you can continue to breastfeed on most mood medications. Also, some people are like, well, I don't want to tell my doctor because then they'll put me on medication and then I can't breastfeed. All of that is misinformation. So that's what I love about this book too, is just within a couple of minutes, you can get empowered with the knowledge, get clear what the science says, but the message I give over, and by the way, it's a great book to like get, sell your mother-in-law or anyone who's like butting in with opinions that you <laughs> are not, be like, Hey, read the, that's read outdated. That's yeah. outdated. Like, yeah. Like, I'm a big fan of baby sign language, teaching baby made up signs or whatever. Um, It's incredible. They can actually communicate way earlier than they have the motor ability to speak. But when I did it, my grandparents were like, you're going to turn him into Coco, that gorilla, and he's never going to speak. So if I'd had this book, I would read, I would say, hey, just take one minute and read the entry on sign language and know it's good for him. It's good. Uh, Well, and I think that as first time moms or even 
um, not as first time moms, but moms who maybe are more anxious and hypervigilant, is when we go down these spirals of research, we find um, like not very good quality research. We find a lot of like anecdotal or people's opinions, yep. or we get stuck in trapped into people's stories of their very negative and traumatic experiences. And it actually just amplifies and exploits that anxiety that we might be feeling even more. And so like, I didn't know as a first time mom, what I what questions I would have. Right. And then I didn't know where to go when I did have them other than Google. So I think that this is such a great tool. And then also somebody who struggled with postpartum anxiety and depression, which I talk very openly about um, on the podcast, this tool would have been a really sound book to like for any new mom, you know, like these are the questions that are going to come up. You can't anticipate them right now. You don't know until you're like in the situation and you're like, should I sleep train? Should I not? (laughs) Pacify or bottle? Like, I don't know. But having one resource that is is sound and isn't going to take you down the rabbit hole of like fear mongering and people's like you know traumatic experiences and stories and things no I think that's so important and I do think that people prey on the vulnerabilities of parents because it matters so much to us so we consume because it makes us feel like we're going to be a better parent I think um, one of my favorite things that someone said about this book was uh hard science and gentle reassurance And my goal through this whole book was I really like held parents in mind every time I was writing. And as I was editing, this book is full of a couple of messages across all of these decision making. The first one is trust yourself and trust your baby. Mm. And you may have people in your life who are saying you have to do it this way, or please don't do this. It's the worst thing ever. Well, maybe it was for that person, but every child is different. Every parent is different. Every family is different. And so I really encourage you besides the main safety things that make sure your child stays alive, like watch them near water, put them in the car seat, put them on their backs to sleep, all of those things. Besides that, there really are not any decisions we make. Now, yes, they're important. All of these decisions are important. But there are really no decisions we make that are going to ruin our children or make them turn into, you know, sociopaths. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of cried out sleep training, but I absolutely believe that for most babies, if parents choose to do that, it's not going to it's not going to have an impact on who your child becomes as a human being. Even the big ones like that, the big, big ones like breastfeeding, like childcare, like co-sleeping, sleep training, you know, all of the big, you know, big juicy ones that people fight about. Those are important decisions, but they're important because it's you want to be intentional and do what works for you and your baby and your family. Had I done a cried out sleep training with my eldest, I actually think it would have been traumatic for him. He was a very sensitive baby. I don't think it would have been traumatic for my other two. Um, I think they probably would have been fine with it. I didn't feel comfortable with it. So it wasn't the right decision for me because even though the research says it's fine to do it if you want to do it, it wasn't the right decision for me because I didn't feel comfortable with it. So I really, that's a big message in the book. Trust yourself, trust your baby. And then when people come at you, especially if they're really adamant about that one approach and that one way to do it, to me, that's always a red flag. To me, Mm -hmm. that's more about the person feeling a need to defend their decision than it is about you. So when you get input from people that is not in line with what you want to do, like if let's say your parent is saying, well, it was fine for you. It was good enough for you. I don't know why you 
are not feeding your baby with a spoon and why you're doing this weird thing called baby led weaning, right? Which is not a weird thing, but it's new for our parents and they don't know, you know, about this is they feel they can feel criticized. Like if we make a different decision, how they did it, then mm -hmm. I think not only our parents, but our friends can feel criticized. So a good way to, to respond to that is to say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I love that you love our baby and that you love me and that you're really, you know, trying to give your input. And I'm going to decide to try it this way and I'll let you know how it so mm -hmm. you're just setting a boundary. I want parents to feel confident and competent in the decisions they make, even if they're different from what other people are telling them to do. Were there any pieces really when you were doing the research? Was there anything that was like shocking or stood out to you um, in your in your researching? Yeah, I mean, there were quite a few things. I mean, okay. the one thing about like letting kids be exposed to germs that surprised me. Another big surprise in the research was the parentees. I didn't know the research was so robust on that. Like it's okay to baby talk, right? It's, it's, it's <laughs> encouraged. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also was really surprised that there are there are safe ways to co-sleep. And I think there's very much a uh, people are fearful for understandable reasons, because obviously the stakes are very high. I was really a little bit surprised by um, the circumcision uh, research, and I'll tell you why. So one of the things I did as I was writing this, but obviously I'm not an expert on 65 topics. I'm not an allergist. I'm not a pediatrician. I'm not a you know feeding expert. That's I'm a mental health person and a child development specialist. So what I did was I often reached out to the world's leading experts in these fields who have published tons of peer-reviewed um, journals. I also, by the way, also looked at the Canadian Pediatric Association and the World Health Organization. I didn't want it to be just U.S.-based things because I live in the U.S. And uh, so anyway, the two leading experts on circumcision are on opposite sides. And both <laughs> of them were adamant in saying the debate is over. The answer is clear. But they but they have not. opposite answers. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's actually really good science on both sides. So yes. that's where I end up with the bottom line for that one is really educate yourself. But there are a lot of cultural and historical and personal values that go into those decisions. Yes. And so consider those two. So yeah, there were there were lots of fun um, surprises in this book. I was shocked to learn that it's okay to use DEET for bug repellent um, after, <laughs> I believe it was after four months of age or two months of age. I can't remember the exact bottom line on the months. Um, so yeah, the book was full of full of surprises. I just like I'm purging all the babies. I'm also a boy mom to three boys. Me too. Yeah. And yeah. And I was uh, like, I'm purging all the baby things. My youngest is now two, two and a half. And I came across all of this like natural and organic bug spray and sunscreen. Like, you know, the natural sunscreen that does not work to like save your life. It's the worst. It's so like chalky and all this. Yeah. By the time I got to the third child, I was like, yeah. You're like, hold <laughs> your breath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Cover yeah, your those, eyes. Those uh, zinc-based sunscreens really are a lot better for all of us. And I have found a couple, a couple of them that actually spread a little bit better. My kids don't like them, but I actually have stopped buying the other kind because I'm just worried about hormone disruption and all that other stuff because of getting down the research right I yeah know. exactly i know exactly. it's so it's so interesting when i think about the questions that i get a lot from like you've got obviously like you had said the feeding and like all of the different areas of questions to really get a good sort of like database of all the things we're encountering in that first year uh when i think about my audience and the people that i work with in the first year it has so much to do with baby's mental health and mom's mental health 
And uh, it's interesting because I feel like on on the postpartum depression side, we've got a more a more sort of maybe shut down or detached feeling, maybe disconnected from baby and or disconnected from partner. Um, and then on the more postpartum anxiety spectrum, we may have an maybe like overly attentive, very zoomed, zoomed in parent that has a hard time even like stepping back to eat their own meal because they feel like they have to be so on all of the time. And so I'm really curious, and I know that one of your previous books had addressed this connection, right, in the secure attachment. And I'm really curious what actually constitutes or like builds a secure attachment, according yeah. to research. This is so important. It's actually, I believe, and I, you know, I have a doctorate in social work and I've studied child development. I've studied interpersonal neurobiology. I have been trained in many, many things. I've read a lot of books and a lot of research. And I will say the one thing that I'm getting ready to talk about is this attachment thing for our babies being attached to us and then for our own attachment relationships in adulthood, this is the most important thing we will ever talk about, especially as it, I mean, period, but especially as it relates to our baby's mental health and our mental health. So this is such an important conversation. I'm so glad you asked. Over 50 years of cross-cultural research that came on the heels of a theorist named John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, who did a bunch of field work, is this thing called attachment science. Now, I want to be really clear that what Erica and I are going to be talking about right now is not the same thing as attachment parenting. Attachment parenting is a parenting approach that um, advocates a certain series of behaviors, which are lovely if they work for you and your baby. I have nothing against co-sleeping if you do it safely or baby wearing or demand feeding, especially at different times. But if you do none of those things, if you do nothing that is like prescribed in the attachment parenting approach, you can still have a baby that's beautifully securely attached to you. So that's why I think it's kind of a misnomer. And the flip side of that is true. You could do all those things, but have a baby that's not securely attached to you. So I, I hate that it's even called attachment parenting because it's it's different from attachment science. I'm going to be talking about over 50 years of cross-cultural attachment science, which is basically the idea that comes from what mammals do. So as mammals, we are born very immature when we are young um, and we have to have our caregivers take care of us or we don't survive. And so the attachment system, its purpose is to keep us connected and protected. So if you're like a little bear cub in the forest and you see a predator or you get hurt or you hear a scary noise, you have an automatic biological instinct to go to your attachment figure who will help you survive. That is what attachment is all about. So one of the things we need to remember is at its core, the attachment system gets most activated when infants are in distress. So this is what, you know, they, they're wet, they're hungry, they um, are in pain. That's when they're most going to cry or to alert you that they need to be cared for. And then we have these really amazing, sophisticated systems that um, respond to our own infant's cry differently, even from other infant's cries. And then that activates our attachment system to go and help keep them safe. Okay, so that's the fundamental piece of attachment. Now, what happens is that the most important thing we can do, the the best predictor for how well kids turn out based on everything that they are measured on, and this is, again, longitudinal research, is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. What I mean by secure attachment is 
that based on repeated relational experiences, the child comes to know not perfect experiences, but repeated enough, predictable enough experiences that if they have a need, their caregiver will see it, understand it and respond in a quick and sensitive attuned way. Mm -hmm. So this begins in infancy when your baby cries and you have to be a detective and you tune in and you eventually find your rhythm. So you know what different cries mean or different facial expressions mean. So let's just say a really basic thing. Your baby is hungry. They're crying. You determine, gosh, it's been a while. It's probably, my baby's probably hungry. So you feed your baby and your baby has this experience that is like eventually over time with repeated experiences, like, oh, when I have a need, someone gets it. They know what I need and they show up for me. So I want to just say about how do we cultivate this kind of secure attachment and how do we maybe even apply it for older kids? The first thing is the number one predictor for how well we provide secure attachment to our children is not based on whether or not we grew up with secure attachment with our own caregivers. Thank God, because 40% of us grew up with an insecure pattern of attachment. Briefly, very briefly, the idea that either your parent was pretty much like an emotional desert. You were on your own emotionally. Um, The world was very surface level. There were not conversations about emotions or thoughts or beliefs. People didn't tune into you. Like if you were crying, they'd be like, if you're going to cry, go to your room or I don't want to hear it. Um, But a very dismissing of of an emotional connection. Or you had the opposite of that, which is funny, that kind of leaned more like in the depression and anxiety you were just talking about. The other one is called a more preoccupied pattern of attachment where um, maybe you had a parent who was totally unreliable. Sometimes they saw and responded to your needs, but sometimes they were flooded with their own needs and were totally inconsistent. So you may have have a lot of anxious or ambivalence. It's also called anxious ambivalent attachment around whether or not you can count on people. And it's hard for you to soothe, get soothed because you're always kind of in this state of like, I don't know if they're going to be there for me. And then one other pattern of insecure attachment, which is the worst of all of them is called disorganized attachment. And this is where if you have a biological instinct to go to your caregiver If you're in distress and your caregiver, though, is the source of your terror or the source of your pain or fear, you actually then also have a biological circuit that says, get the hell away from what's dangerous. So it actually creates disorganization in the brain. And that's a huge predictor for mental health challenges in adulthood. It's it's the best predictor we have, actually, scientifically of predicting that. But none of that, our history is not our destiny. So if you grew up with any of that... Mm -hmm. The science says the number one predictor for how well we are able to provide the most important thing we can give our kids, which is the bottom line of the bottom line. I give a bottom line of the bottom line, which says, look, no matter what you decide about all these things, the most important thing is to build secure attachment with your child. Yeah. The number one predictor is whether or not you have reflected on those experiences, made sense of those experiences. So instead of running from the past and saying that doesn't have anything to do with me, whatever, Mm -hmm. Or instead of being flooded by it all the time where we're like overwhelmed and it intrudes on our lives all the time, we say, gosh, my parents didn't really show up for me or I didn't really feel safe in my home or my parents were like really nurturing when it came to like food and those kinds of things. But I was totally on my own emotionally. So what it is, is it's about really making sense of that. And we can do that through therapy or through journaling or through talking to friends, lots of ways we can do that. But now what I want to say is that, okay, besides that ongoing journey of self-reflection, which is throughout all of parenting. When you have teenagers, you have new issues to do some self-reflection about. (laughs) But what we can do every day for our babies, toddlers, children, teenagers, even adult children, if you're listening and have adult children, is what Dan and I talk about in The Power of Showing Up, which 
I'm so mm-hmm. proud of because this whole book is really about how do we cultivate secure attachment in a really practical way. And the way we talk about it is how we want to provide our children with the four S's. And I'll just hit those really quickly. The first is safe, helping protect them from harm, not being the source of their harm. Mm. Um, But when we are unpredictable, like we yell or we are immature or we act as parents in ways that don't feel good to our child or to ourselves, we reconnect with them. We make a repair. We apologize, um, those kinds of things. But safety is the most important part of attachment. And, um, And we really want our kids to know that we've got it. So, you know, right now with the pandemic, one of the things I'm talking to parents about is using safety-based language instead of threat-based language. I've got a video on my website about that um, where you say we're taking a break from doing whatever so that we can be safe instead of we're not doing that because it's dangerous. Because we want our children, so when you don't feel safe, you have to be hypervigilant all the time to scan your environment, making sure you're safe because it's the brain's number one priority. If you have a parent who's on it, who's like, I've got you. This is safe. I'm watching. You can go ahead. Then your child can rest in the safety of that and it can free up their brains to explore and learn important piece of this attachment. When we keep them safe, it gives them the opportunity to build their prefrontal cortex in a, in a better way. Second S is seen. This is tuning into the mind behind the behavior. So not just looking at the behavior, but really looking at what your child's internal experience is. And so we're just really tuning in, helping them feel felt and understood. Um, and so uh, my, one of my favorite examples of this is when my son was in the bathtub and didn't want to get out. He was probably four at the time. And I said, it's time to get out. By the way, having this is not a permissive parenting approach. Having boundaries and expectations actually helps kids feel safer. So mm-hmm. um, you can say no to the behavior even while you're saying yes to your child's emotional experience. So I told my son, it's time to get out. He wouldn't get out. He was yelling. And I said, now you can either get out yourself or I will help you get out. First, I make sure I'm calm. And then as I'm lifting him out of the tub and holding my boundary of bath time is over, I'm saying to him and he's screaming and yelling and crying. And I say, you're so angry that bath time is over. You're just really wanted to stay in, didn't you? Is that right? And so that's what scene is like. It's really about having your child's internal experience and the way you respond be a match. Mm -hmm. Because when we don't do that and we're like, why are you so freaked out about that? It's not a big deal. Your child is like, okay, you're not on it. It's Mm -hmm. a big deal to me. So now Mm -hmm. I'm alone with this feeling and you're not going to help me. And the research shows that when parents don't do this scene, they actually start more and more relying on their peers that they do feel understood by. And they go to their peers for advice rather than their parents as things get trickier and stickier later on. The third S is soothed. This is nurturing, supporting, comforting, helping. So when your child is in physical pain, it's pretty easy to do that soothing piece. Um, and we often even automatically do the name it to tame it approach in, in the whole brain child where we say, oh, you fell down and you scraped your knee and it hurts so much. And I'm going to help you with it. And it's going to hurt for a little while, but then it'll feel better. But we're comforting in those moments. But a lot of parents don't know that when our children are raging and having tantrums or having big, big feelings, it's actually really stressful for kids. And the brain registers emotional pain and physical pain in the same part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine when your child is at their worst and they're they're off the hook crazy in that moment, that's actually when they need you most. 
Hmm. Yes, you should address the behavior. You can address the behavior, but not in that moment. Your child can't even learn. They can't even hear you in that moment. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, so my son's screaming coming out of the bathtub. I see, you know, I do the C part um, scene. I say, you're, you're really mad. Bath time's over. And then I wrap the towel around him. I pull him close to me and I say, I'm, I know you're really upset. And if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you while you cry. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's, you know, I think it's really incredibly liberating for us as parents. Once we understand that when our children are falling apart, we, we put in so much cognitive and emotional load in that moment where we're trying to fix it or figure it out or come up with a solution or figure out the right bargain or, you know, all of those things. You don't have to do any of those things. Mm -hmm. Your child is falling apart. They're disappointed because they don't get to stay up as late as their big brother or whatever it is. While they're crying, all you have to do is be present and give them these four S's and to just be there with them. I know this is really hard. It's hard to feel left out. I'm right here with you while you feel that. That's what builds resilience. What mm -hmm. builds resilience is sitting in difficult feelings and circumstances with enough support. Yes. So anyway, you, we don't have to be perfect, but when we help our kids feel safe, seen and soothed enough. Um, it actually leads to this final fourth S, which is secure. And secure attachment is really about having the brain be wired to know that if you have a need, someone's going to show up for you. And even better, it teaches kids how to show up for themselves. So their brains get wired so that they can keep themselves safe. They can see and understand themselves. They can soothe themselves. That's how self-soothing happens. It doesn't typically happen in infancy, by the way. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of practice with co-regulation for that to happen. Um, and so then they learn how to then provide secure attachment to others. And so one final thought, and then I'll pause because I know I've been talking for a long time, Erica. No, I love it. I love it. This is so key for us as well. So there are lots of moments as a parent, I'm not sure what to do, but I know that the four S's is my North Star. It is always the right thing to do. So in the moment, if I can go, okay, I'm going to help my kid feel safe, seen, soothed, secure, and we can even do this in discipline, then even though that I, that's my goal, that's my North Star. And parenting that way and having that is a simple idea, but it is not always easy to do. And the key is that our attachment needs are throughout our lifespan. So I need someone to show up for me, for me to have the capacity to do this for my kids. I need to feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. So yeah. I need that from my husband. I need it from my best friend. I still get it from my mom. We have got to make sure that we have people who show up for us. That's a big challenge to all of you who are listening is to say to you, you matter too. And we give so much, we sacrifice so much for our children, but we matter too. And so seek out people who show up for you, reach out to another parent who may not have that either. And then also show up for yourself, take care of yourself so that you have the capacity to do it. Want to get smarter about your health, but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. 
With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. The part that I really play when it comes to working with moms is the being able to tolerate and be mindful in our own body so we can sit with the big feelings because we have not been taught. A lot of us come from homes where we're like having to break cycles of not being able to display big feelings and therefore not being able to to really know how to steward them or how to ride the waves of emotion that come in. And so I would say like 95% of the work I do with moms, a lot of the work I do is about how do we, how do we stay in our body, stay calm and regulated in that moment so that we can be like, you know, in our body for ourselves, but also attuned to their need in that moment. If we are so flooded, I think, as you had said before, and so over our own capacity in terms of coping when big feelings and chaos are breaking out in the house, it's so difficult to be attuned and to to be connected in those moments in the way that our children might need. And we haven't been taught that a lot of us. That's a very conscious 
and sometimes hard or long journey, but so incredibly rewarding and worth it when we can start to apply those skills and then see them taking root and see them uh, kind of growing into something really beneficial. Yeah, it's so important too. And it does get easier because our brains get wired. Our brains are plastic. So as we do that more, it it gets easier. I was so much better at it with my third kid than I was with my first. You know, it's really interesting that you're saying this because you know, my father-in-law is 85 and um, he was visiting last night and he said, I think I'm getting old because I'm feeling really irritable. I'm getting upset about things that don't typically upset me. And I was telling him about, first of all, how normal that is right now. I was normalizing those feelings. But then I said, I want to teach you a couple of things I've taught my kids. And I said, the first thing is feelings. And we talk about this in the whole brain child are like the weather. They come and they go. And so when we have a feelings, especially our kids, they think, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I, I don't like this. I don't want to feel this. So we, we try and distract ourselves or get out of it or we get upset about even feeling it. And if we actually just become curious about it or just notice it, then it can kind of move through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think and so I taught him a couple of important things. So I'll just give them quickly because they're really practical. Mm -hmm. First is that our feelings are a healthy part of life. And so when we have these feelings, we can even thank our brains. We can say, thank you for helping me pay attention to this because usually our feelings are saying this, something isn't working here for me and what do I need? So it's really an opportunity to be curious about what we need. But I was telling him that we do not have to be victim and we can teach this to our kids, but it's so important that we know this first as parents, we do not have to be victim to our own emotional chaos and and emotional states. And we don't have to be victim to our circumstances. We have incredible power using our minds and our bodies to shift our emotional state. I just want to say too, as a caveat, if you're experiencing a postpartum mood disorder, you may not have the capacity to just use your mind. You might need some pharmaceutical uh, help because your hormones and your brain chemistry might need some help. So just, I want to say that so no one feels like they're not doing enough because that's not the case at all. But Mm -hmm. I taught him two things that that can help. I said, so what you can do is use your body and your mind. So the first thing I, I gave him three strategies. One, when you feel it, just notice it like you're a spectator. And you're just Mm -hmm. observing it. And then you can name it. You can say, oh, I'm feeling really annoyed right now, right? Okay, so that's number one. Number two, and all of you who are listening can try this. Um, I learned this from Dan Siegel. If you put a hand on your heart or on your chest and a hand on your belly right below your navel and just apply a little bit of pressure and take a deep breath. And then take another deep breath. And you can actually experiment. Some people prefer their left hand on top. Some people prefer their right hand on top. Most people prefer right hand on top, regardless of handedness. But when we do that, it's very soothing to our nervous systems. So you can just do that in the moment. Like I I used to do this um, before I would yell, before I would like, I was like ready to yell. And I would put my hand on my chest and my hand on my belly. And I would take a couple of deep breaths and it would soothe my nervous system. But my kids also knew it was a warning that I was about to explode. (laughs) So it kind of made them rein it in. So it had a double purpose. Exactly. And then the third strategy I taught him can go with all, all three of them can be put together. And that is when your exhale is longer than your inhale, it activates the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system, which is like the brakes that calms us down. It's like turning our volume dial down on our Mm. our big feelings. So if you breathe in for like a count of five and then breathe out for a count of seven or four and eight, whatever works for you, 
those are really, really helpful strategies. One other thing I'll throw out there that's from No Drama Discipline is if you want to yell and you're feeling really dysregulated and overwhelmed as a parent, if you force yourself to sit on the floor in a relaxed posture, so crisscross applesauce or lean back on your arms or lean on your side, it actually doesn't have to be the floor, but helps if it's on the floor or on a low surface um, below your child's eye level is the key. Um, When you put yourself in a relaxed posture, it activates a different brain network than if you're if you're standing with your arms folded or you're wagging your finger, you're actually activating. It's more of a bottom up process. You're activating neural networks for fighting or anger. But if you sit in a relaxed posture and you take a deep breath, it actually activates different neural circuitry. So those are all some really helpful, more bottom up strategies, because when we are losing it, we actually can't even use our prefrontal cortex. So more thinking based, um, self-taught kinds of things may not be very helpful. We need some bottom up strategies using our body and our nervous system. Yeah, really grounding ourselves, bringing ourselves back into our body, you know, keeping that more rational brain online, as I I hear Dan say a lot, right? Um, So that we can be in a place to problem solve and deal with this situation ahead of us in a less reactive and sort of primitive way. So Um, when your kid's having a big feeling, you know, just doing this to ground yourself. And I want to go back, Erica, to one thing you said about, you know, how so much of your work is about helping parents tolerate their children's big feelings and negative states of emotion. If in your mind, you know, and you can even just say to yourself, okay, you know, like when I lift weights, I do reps, my muscle gets stronger. That's what we're doing in our kids' brains in those moments is we're saying, I'm going to give them a rep to build their brain muscles for uh, having a wider window of tolerance so that they are resilient, they can handle big feelings. So in that moment, when your kid's raging and they're upset about something and you say, yes, you're feeling whatever it is you're feeling. And we know that when parents talk to their kids about their feelings, they actually have much better emotional intelligence and better ways to regulate themselves. You're giving your kid a rep to say, I'm going to let you practice feeling sad. I'm going to let you get a rep practice feeling disappointed or angry. Mm -hmm. And with my support, your kid will come out of it going, not necessarily consciously, but they're going to say, oh, I can handle that feeling. Like I've felt that before and I got through it. No problem. So I can do it again. So it's actually just totally changing their emotional capacity. Totally. And and there's room. And one of the things that you had mentioned too is, is that when we do lose it, there is room for repair because we're not raised, you know, in these new these new patterns of behavior. We're forging them and we're quite literally like laying them down, right? So there's room for that repair. And I think about moments when I'm like laying in bed with the kids at the end of the day. And it's like, oh, you know, I love you so much. I love you. Like I love you when you're when you're happy, but I also love you when you're grumpy. You know, I love you when you're like rolling around on the floor upset and when we're playing a game at the table. And it's funny because like my middle one, he can like hulk out and go bananas. And and he turned to me at bedtime. He's like, you mean you love me even when I stand on the dining room table? That was the worst. Right? Like that's the thing you could think of. Like even when I climb up on the table, like, yeah. Of course. I love you even then, you know? So there is room for, like, we're never, we're not going to be perfect at this. We get better at it. We lay down these pathways, we improve it. And then there's going to be days when we are either maybe not feeling well, or we're at capacity, we're under the deadline of a project, and we have less capacity in the day, and we maybe slip up and get it wrong. But that repair is so crucial and also models and teaches to them 
how to repair when they get it wrong. And they have an experience where they learn or get a rep that um, a repetition for their brain to practice that relationships can be messy and have conflict in them sometimes, but then we always make things right. And that's why, you know, that repair piece is under the safe um, S because even if we make our kid not feel safe in a moment because we're yelling or maybe we're fighting with our significant other in a way that is frightening for our child, when we go and repair with our kids and we do that always, or most of the time, then our kids are like, that still is predictable and safe. They're like, oh, that felt really bad. Or mom was really mean. Or what was up with that? But I know she's going to come make it right. Because then when they have future relationships where there's conflict, they don't immediately feel insecure, like, oh, now this is over. Because they know that there can be conflict and then resolution. So we're expanding our child's window of tolerance for being resilient in relationships as well. I love it. And I think that this is such an important conversation, pulling on all of your books and resources in there, because the bottom line for baby is such an incredible tool. I'm going to get it for all of my new mom friends, because I can so distinctly remember those days. Yeah. Um, and, but and when it comes to some of these decisions, like you said, the bottom line of the bottom line is that there is no right way. And one choice over the other doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make it or break it in a lot of these situations right. that it's this secure attachment and this commitment to us healing our own traumas and our own experiences uh, to be able to be present in our relationships and be attuned in our relationships is that make it or break it at the end of the day. That's right. My One of my favorite things I'm saying about the bottom line for baby is in the messaging is there are not very many right and wrong kinds of things and that there are many, many ways to be a great parent. And that a lot of the decisions we're making are not the determination of whether or not we are a great parent. What matters most is that secure attachment piece, that you help your child feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure by showing up for them when they need you most and building that trust and giving them experiences you know, I have a kid away at college and the one bad thing is he's living his life and we don't get to talk to him every day. And we, you know, we, we sometimes feel like we're missing him and out of touch. And when he's not in touch, it means things are going well. When things are not going great, he's in touch more. And that's exactly how the attachment system is supposed to work. We are supposed to be the safe haven, the secure base and the launching pad, right? And that means that our kids know, you know, when things aren't going well for me, I call my mom, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's always still that I know she will always show up for me. And, you know, I think that's the other piece too, back to the self-care part, is that if you want to be the safe haven for your child or the safe harbor when the world is stormy or when they're stormy, we can't be the storm, and so mm. what that means is we, and if we are, we need to repair, but if, yes. but, you know, we really, really need to, in those moments when we get or start ratcheting things up is to pause and calm ourselves down and say, I want to be the safe harbor in this storm. We don't want to add to our child's chaos. And that's a lot of where things go wrong around discipline too, is that we actually amplify the distress of our child, making it less likely they can even learn. So that's just such an important part of trying to be the safe harbor means we can't be the storm, which means we may need some support. So if you're feeling like you feel really stormy, you're not alone. The world is very stormy right now. And most mm-hmm. of us are feeling that at least some days. So, but a lot of people are feeling that reach out, show up for other people, find people who will show up for you and show up for yourself. Do something that that's just for you. 
If we could end with some myths of what what people think secure attachment is or like what builds secure attachment, just to kind of put it out there, because I think that there are several that I come across in session and working with parents and perhaps you do as well, um, that we think that, and you address some of these in the bottom line for baby as well, things like whether we stay at home and are with baby all the time or we return to work, things like, you know, other caregivers in the home and nannies, things like that. So uh, can we kind of address some of those myths and if those really take away from or interfere with secure attachment? Um, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's such an important question. And some of my colleagues and I are always having these conversations like, oh, it's so frustrating that that's how it's known. Human babies can have many attachment figures. So it's typically who they spend the most time with, who is the primary caregiver that they have the initial attachment with. But it's best for babies and children to have multiple attached, secure attachment figures. And actually, that was one of my big goals. Like I thought, gosh, what if something happened to me? And what happened or what if something happened to my husband and me? Like I want my kids to have secure attachment with their grandparents, with their aunts and uncles. And, you know, with my best friend, um, who's like their second mom, um, it's so important. So working or not working is not determining, does not matter in terms of secure attachment and insecure attachment. What matters is the hours you are with your child, you are providing them the four S's. Okay. So that's an important Mm -hmm. one. What about Um, feeding or breastfeeding, bottle feeding or nursing or breastfeeding? Nothing to do with secure attachment or not secure attachment. You know, these are all things that I think people have taken some of the attachment science and have then it's gone, it's gone folded into this truncated, like parenting approach called attachment parenting. And then it's gotten so extreme in the last 15 years that I've actually had parents who have been in my office and they were practicing attachment parenting. that was so extreme that they didn't feel like they could ever give their child a bottle. They didn't feel like they could ever let anybody else comfort their child. They um, didn't feel like they could ever set boundaries with their child, that they had to be child led that does not make kids feel safe. And that they were so focused on meeting every single need of their child that I was worried that they couldn't even drive home safely because they were so sleep deprived. That is not attachment parenting. Mm. And if you go back to Dr. Sears's book, that's not what the book is about. There's been an extreme kind of like push even further out from that. And it's certainly not attachment science. In fact, some of the stuff that's called this attachment-based parenting, I think is actually pretty intrusive. Mm. And that's actually a feature of what's called anxious, ambivalent, preoccupied attachment. When Absolutely. a parent is intrusive, where it's about the parent meeting their need to feel like they are the secure attachment person, then it starts really getting away from us. You do not have to stimulate your child with something educational or with emotional engagement every second of the day. That is intrusive. Babies and children need space. They need quiet time. They need to know you're there if they need you. They need to know you're going to check in on them, that you're making sure that they're safe. But a hyper focus on your child and their every single need, every moment of the day is not healthy. It's not the same thing as attachment. Is that what you're kind of talking about? Totally it. That's totally it. Is that we think that, um, like I remember, for example, with my firstborn, he was held so much, he probably didn't crawl till he was like, I don't even know how many months, right? By the time I got to my third baby, this kid was walking by the time he was nine and a half, 10 months because he had so much more independent time to fuss and move and push out his own gas and And work it out himself. Not in a neglectful way, in a a way that I I could be like, 
that cry is a bit of a protest. I'm going to give it a minute, finish lunch, then pick him up. And that is healthy. That is good. That builds, again, that tolerance and some of that independence in our children to be able to do that. And so often I see secure attachment being equated with like that hypervigilance or that right on top of every single need. When actually sometimes I work with parents to like, let's scale back. Let's yep. let's create, like, let's do messy play. Let's leave room for independent play. Let's not direct it. Just that you don't have to be on top of every single need every moment. And you don't have to physically be present and with them 24-7 either. No. And when we do everything for our child and we anticipate their need before they ever have it on every single thing, and, you know, we are right in the mix of all of it all of the time, what we actually do is stunt our child's development. Mm -hmm. Because when I let my kids struggle, and I'm watching, I'm tuning in, I'm watching, I'm making sure the frustration is not getting too high. But I I let him struggle for a minute. And then I might say, hmm, do you want to try it a different way? Or do you want to turn it a little right? But when we step in and do everything for them, and, and we're hyper need based, then we actually are communicating to our child, I don't believe you are ready for this. I don't believe you can handle this. You need me to do things for you. And that is, again, not the developmental trajectory. I think for sure, and this is a message in the science and in the bottom line for baby, you actually cannot spoil a child by giving them too much attention, by holding them too much, by meeting their needs. And that's what we think about in in infancy. But then as they get older, it's really about kind of loosening that a little bit. And, And again, you know, it's, like, I think that if my if my kid is really upset and has an attachment cry, I'm going to pick that baby up right away. Mm. If my child's just fussing and I have three more bites of my sandwich and I'm going to let him work it out and experience that feeling of like, I'm calling for you and he can wait 30 seconds, that's mm-hmm. good for him too. So mm-hmm. it's not about whether or not you pick your baby up or whether or not you do all of these things. It's really about tuning into your child's need, tracking what they can tolerate and what they need support in. Mm -hmm. And that is so individual for every baby. You know, Mm -hmm. my firstborn was a super high need baby. Um, My second two were the easiest babies. And so my firstborn needed to be held a lot. He needed to be supported a lot and the others didn't so much. So it's, it's again, not about like a certain number of hours or whatever, but we want to tune into the need, meet the needs, but it's really got to be about our kids need, not about our need to feel like we're doing it, you know, a certain way. And I think that's really important is there's, and, and I'll say this to any time someone takes any parenting approach And it's like their only approach and they're doing it in the extreme way. That's not really good because your child is unique. And there are even parenting books and approaches that I strongly disagree with, but there are some nuggets in those books and those approaches. And so you take those nuggets out and you take out other things. You take a couple things from the attachment parenting thing and you take a couple things from whatever, and then you've got some tools and then you tune into your kid and you use the tools as you can. But anything that's extreme and one approach only is typically not going to lead you to following your child's lead. Then you're following an approach or a set of rules or a, a set a lens. And, and that's not really what it's about. Yeah, it's like super prescriptive instead of actually attuned, right? Right. Yeah. 
Oh my goodness, this has been such a joy. Thank you for this. And I like, I love the resources, all of the resources that you've created um, and this very practical resource for new moms. And I love the bottom line of the bottom line as well. Where can people find you? Do you hang out online? Where can they buy your books? All of these things. My website um, has all kinds of free materials on there and it's tinabryson.com. And um, you can find links to all the books and videos and blogs and all kinds of things on there. Um, and I am on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, but Instagram's where I'm doing the most content these days. And my handle there is Tina Payne Bryson. There are links to buy the book on my website, but you can just anywhere books are sold. You can find them. I'm, I'm out there. People yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the books are everywhere. Amazon and you know, Audible and take them in really, really great. And like disciplined ones will completely change your entire perspective, especially if you grew up with sort of authoritative, authoritative, authoritarian. authoritarian. I always confuse the two. Authoritarian <laughs> style of discipline in your home. It's yeah. really, really um, sort of mind opening, which is great. Yeah. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. I can't wait to dive into all the things I sure, I'm sure are to come. So thank you. Thank you. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? <laughs> because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, for the girls who want more. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.